Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, Eric Early is running an uphill battle to win the U.S. Senate seat, once held by Dianne Feinstein. The Republican entertainment lawyer from Southern California has some stiff competition. Including fellow Republican Steve Garvey, the former L.A. Dodgers star who jumped into the race recently, not to mention three Democratic members of Congress. He'll talk with us about his campaign and what he'd like to do if he represents California in the U.S. Senate. But first, Marisa, we had a little election this week, uh, multiple elections in different states, uh, the ones that got all the attention, Kentucky, Ohio, Virginia. um, Ohio voted to enshrine abortion rights in their constitution, and abortion played big in the other states as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this was a little little bit of a surprise for some observers after some really dismal polls for Democrats, especially Joe Biden in recent weeks, looking ahead to 2024, of course, the only poll that matters. Is on election day, although now it's election month, but that's another story. Um, But yeah, so I do think that this was a shot in the arm for some Democrats. It really did sort of illustrate that, at least in some races, abortion still remains a very potent issue. Um, And I think, you know, it, it shows really how much things are changing the electorate. You know, it used to be off-year elections really favored more conservative candidates and causes that you saw, you know, kind of more liberal younger voters coming out in presidential years. That seems to have switched a little bit. And the polls are also showing that those same groups, uh, voters of color, young voters, non-college educated voters are the same ones Democrats, specifically the president, are going to need in trouble with. Yeah. And I think, too, it's a, it's a lesson that if you put something on the ballot to draw those voters out, like abortion rights or expanding Medicaid, as they've done in some other states, that you can actually change the composition of the electorate by bringing people out. Um, Kentucky, uh, oh, before we leave Ohio, we, we, you know, we have to mention that uh, cannabis also got legalized, yes. recreational cannabis, uh, roughly the same. I don't know if they were the same exact voters, but they were both about 57%, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, adding to the list of states. Yeah, keeps growing, keeps growing. And it is interesting because it almost feels not as big of a talker uh, anymore. You yeah, know, it's, it's like, like, oh yeah, 25 states now. But I saw somebody, you know, tweeting about this the other day. It is kind of just wild that like half the country is essentially legalized marijuana and the federal government still considers it a narcotic. <laughs> and it's like, it's just this total disconnect. There seems to be no interest in Congress, despite the fact that this, to your point, is happening in red states, blue states, purple states, and actually taking on this issue and changing anything federally. Yeah. and Well, I think, you know, and there are a lot of libertarian leaning Republicans, like maybe uh, Rand Paul in Kentucky, uh, who, you know, support this kind of thing anyway. But it does kind of, if you think about it, conflict with their 
crime message mm-hmm. as well. So maybe they don't want to touch it. But for I that think it, I mean that's actually the libertarian thing. I I wonder if there's some overlap with the abortion issue there too, though, right? This idea of just like stay out of my life. Yeah, you know, yeah, let me do what sure. I want to do. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of Kentucky, uh, Andy Bashir, the Democratic governor there in a state where Trump won by. 26, 26 points, points crazy, um, got reelected, you know, by I think 5248-ish, uh, beat an upcoming uh, Republican, Daniel Cameron, the AG. Um, and, and now there's, of course, we can't we can't stay in the moment, but there, people are thinking about him as a possible candidate for president in 2028, as is our governor. Um, is there any, is there any bigger takeaway, uh, you know, for the for the rest of the country based on what Andy Bashir was able to do? I think the candidates matter and how you run races matter. I mean, clearly he did lean into abortion, but that was not the only thing. You mentioned Medicaid expansion. That was another big issue there. I think that, um, you know, he really did work hard, if you listen to his victory speech, to like not yoke himself to National Democrats to talk about the kind of things we have in common. I do think maybe that that message of positivity is something that Democrats historically have done better on. Um, But, you know, Kentucky is all these states. I think it's hard to know how many lessons to take from them because, like, I mean, look at Ohio. Like, what is going on in Ohio? They have a super conservative governor. Their Senate seats are split between J.D. Vance, this populist sort of MAGA guy, and Tim Ryan, a pretty... Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown. Who's really out there. He's a real progressive. He's up for re-election. We'll see what happens in 2024. Yeah, and then they legalize abortion. I mean, I don't know. It's very hard to know. But I do think... um, you know, we do see a lot of concern, as we said, you know, at the top because of some polls we're going to get to. And I think that if nothing else, like maybe this was just a good sort of moment for Democrats to stop freaking out. Yeah, they were freaking out. And then quickly, Virginia, where they now have control of both uh, houses of the state legislature there, uh, which uh, is something that is going to really put a roadblock to the governor, Glenn Youngkin, who had been thinking he'd found the secret sauce on abortion, a 15 week limit on abortion. And obviously, voters uh, didn't go for that. And I was listening to Amy Walter this week say that, you know, a lot of Republicans say they have a messaging problem on abortion. Actually, they have a problem problem. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is a fundamental thing, uh, which we you know also saw play out but in all the that GOP said, debate. It's still going to be a tough year in 2024 for Democrats. And I think, you know, we saw just uh, on Thursday today, Senator Joe Manchin, independent of West Virginia, who is mostly Voted with Joe Biden, but held up some some things. Uh, Watered down some yeah, things. He is yeah. not running for re-election. Um, his retirement means that Democrats, you know, who are already going to be defending twenty three seats, um, will actually be, you know, there will be this open seat. Uh, Trump won West Virginia and two other states that are also held by Democrats. So the Senate is looking like a challenge for sure. And I, I do wonder, you know, Manchin. He did, you know, in his defense, if you're from a Democrat perspective, uh, voted for all of Biden's judges uh, and, uh, you know, was kind of a pain in the neck on some things from a Democratic uh, agenda point of view. But got that infrastructure bill over the line and the um, whatever whatever they're calling the Inflation Reduction (laughs) Act. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whatever that is. Yeah, exactly. And then just quickly, uh, also this week, uh, Berkeley IGS poll showing uh, approval rating for Governor Newsom, kind of dropping a bit. He's a bit underwater, 44% approval to 49%. Hard to know how much of that is just general malaise, 
uh, among voters, uh, discontent over things like homelessness, uh, and how much of it is, you know, maybe voters not so thrilled with his taking on uh, national issues and international issues going to Israel, China, and so on. We okay, will gotta, keep an eye on that. I, I got to correct something. Joe Manchin is a Democrat. I am sorry about that. What did you say? I said he was an independent. Kirsten Sinema is an independent. He's flirted with being he an is independent. Flirted with it. He acts like an independent. Yeah. Um, but there yeah. are a couple others that do caucus with the Dems, and I do think that just having, you know, more conservative Democrats like himself, someone like Kirsten Sinema, who's who's kind of been flirting on the edges of the party and, and did leave this year, it just makes it harder. Yeah. And, well, and also to, you know, maybe explain your confusion, he's also flirting with the idea of joining the presidential election under the no labels <laughs> ticket, whatever sorry, that is. I can't keep track of all this, you guys. <laughs> okay. All That's right. My let's, job, but, all yeah. right. Uh, well, uh, we're going to take a short break because we need one, right? We've got to take a breath. Uh, and when we return, we're going to be joined by Eric Early. He's a Republican running for the U.S. Senate seat once held by Dianne Feinstein. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Dilfetah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Well, the presidential election will be the focus of the March primary in California, but there's a lively race for the U.S. Senate seat, currently filled temporarily by LaFonza Butler. She was appointed, of course, by Governor Newsom after Dianne Feinstein died. Our guest today wants the job. Eric Early is a Republican entertainment lawyer from Los Angeles. And if his name sounds familiar, it might be because, well, he ran for attorney general last year. He finished a close third. Eric Early, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks for having me. So we'd like to kind of learn a little bit about our guests. And uh, we read that, you know, before you became a lawyer, you yeah. went to uh, NYU, you got a degree in fine arts, and you were in the film industry. Uh, so what gives? <laughs> well, it's true. I uh, I graduated a couple decades ago uh, from NYU undergraduate film school. And uh, I was sent out here on a job all expenses paid in the, in the mid-1980s. I was the post-production supervisor on all the big toy-based animation at the time, Transformers, G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, Gem and the Holograms. Uh, I all wrote, the hits. Oh, yeah. I wrote <laughs> some of the, uh, the gems and the Transformers and the G.I. Joe here and there. And uh, in any event, um, I ended up going to law school at night. Mm. Uh, because I had a very young family at that time. I had to work during the day. I never thought I'd be a lawyer, frankly. My uh, my dad did not like lawyers, so I know all the bad lawyer stuff. Um, but it was I was doing my best to keep my family together at the time, frankly. And uh, it turned out, I never so I never thought I'd be a lawyer, but it turned out to be uh, a very good thing. Turned out I'm good at it, and turned out I like doing it. And 
it turned out it was nice to be uh, earning a regular paycheck and all those kind of things. Well, you still work in the entertainment industry as a lawyer. Talk about what kind of clients do you represent? Well, frankly, I am more of what you'd call a business litigator. And I'm the managing partner of a 25-lawyer law firm. We practice in courts all around uh, California, all around the nation, uh, major cases, major clients. And so we that term, uh, business litigation, is sort of an umbrella for all kinds of things that we do and I do. We do real estate litigation, entertainment litigation, um, uh, contract litigation, business-to-business battles, um, constitutional litigation, and things like that. And so... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, I enjoy doing it, and it gives me the opportunity to do what I do here, which is run for office. Aside from the regular paycheck and all that, is there a way in which you know the film stuff was more fun? Like, was that more your passion? Well, it was my passion, frankly, and uh, I never wanted to leave the uh, film business. I never thought I'd be in politics, frankly, uh, certainly not at that time. Just like I never thought I'd be a lawyer. Uh, I was sort of an up-and-coming uh, director and writer and editor, uh, and uh, but uh, for and so I was very sort of obsessed with it. And um, but for better or for worse, my ex-wife hated that in that world. And uh, <laughs> frankly, something I don't talk about publicly too much. We had a little infant, my son, who's now 35 years old. And at the time, she said, I'm moving back east with him unless you get a real job oh, and a real wow. life. And I had no money. <laughs> and unfortunately, she had some issues, and I didn't want him to be uh, alone with her, and I didn't want him not to be in my life. And that's why I went to law school. Interesting. Um, really, uh, because I didn't want to lose my son. Um, and like I said, it happened to turn out. Well, yeah. but but it was career. totally unexpected. Good career for you. Yeah. Well, I know that you joined the actors on the SAG after picket line. Yes. Um, there was a deal struck this week. I'm curious what you think about the deal, and just more broadly, why are you out there? I think it might surprise some folks to see a conservative Republican out there. It surprised a lot of people. Uh, they forget that Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors. <laughs> yes, he was. True. That's how he burnished his political exactly. credentials. And Ronald Reagan was a Democrat before he was a Republican. So was I, by the way. Um, you know, uh, I saw them getting hosed, frankly, the actors and the writers. Uh, I saw what the issues were generally with respect to residuals for streaming, the AI issues and, and other issues like that. And uh, and I'm no fan of the uh, the major studios for a host of reasons. And, uh, and I was also very concerned because it's not just the actors and writers. You know, the writers settled several weeks ago, and I'm thrilled that the actors have now settled. But there are all of these um, other industries yeah. and jobs uh, that, are, uh, that are completely um, subject to the actors working and the writers working. You have other trade unions. You have the... Uh, Teamsters, you have IATSE, you have the electricians, you have the grips, you have the prop houses, you've got the restaurants to feed everybody, you've got the craft services, you got hair and makeup, and it goes on and on, casting, and, and all those people have been put out of work. And so uh, I was really happy to be able to go out there and walk with the actors and the writers, and, uh, and very honored to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I am fighting for the uh, working people in the middle class in this state and in this country. That's what I fight for. And um, and when it comes to the 
trade unions as distinguished from the public employee unions, um, I was uh, I was happy to go out and and uh, pick it with them. And I'm thrilled, like I said, that not only did the writers settle a couple weeks ago, but uh, but the uh, actors who were being really put into starvation wages have now settled and all and and all the money and and all that's going to bring back to those support industries and oh by the way we can't lose sight of the fact that every american and people in other parts of the world we get our relief mm. from watching these shows and these are very tense and difficult times so uh, for me for example just me speaking personally i miss a lot of great shows that my wife and i like to watch together other people do as well. Yeah. So this is important not only for the folks who are on strike, but for the nation as well. So do you think of yourself as a pro-labor Republican? I mean, would it extend, for example, to raising the minimum wage? Uh, again. Well, no. It By again, I mean They would not, frankly. And listen, I spent a couple years of my life earning the, the minimum wage back in the day. I know how important the minimum wage is for people, and especially people who've got uh, others to support and everything, we understand how important it is that they make as much money as possible. But but the thing that a lot of people who support government control of, of increasing the minimum wage just don't want to look at and don't seem to see is that businesses have overheads. And I run a business, okay? I, I run a law firm. We have budgets. And we want to take care of our employees as best as we can. But if you force, for example, these fast food uh, restaurants, which is where this st is starting with the laws in California, to increase the minimum wage above and beyond what they believe their budgets can pay, the unfortunate effect of this at the end of the day will be that those fast food restaurants and the others who are being uh, forced by law to increase their minimum wage will go out of business. Although and they, they did come on. to the table. Well, hold and, on. Let me yeah. just finish. Okay. And so the people that we're hoping to help will be the first ones who get hurt, which is the people who, who need those jobs, and not to mention all of the people who live in those neighborhoods. So it, it's got to be looked at, unfortunately, from a more um, uh, a more a, a dispassionate view. We have to look at it as the way businesses work. But you Can have I to. Ask, yeah, go well, ahead. yeah. I mean, you said you, the, you you differentiate between trade unions and public employee unions. So, does that extend to you know hotel workers are on strike in LA? UPS just had this big UAW. Starbucks is organizing. Like, where do you draw that line? Well, I, I'll tell you something. Uh, when it comes to the uh, private unions, the trade unions, you know. Um, Kaiser was on strike and right down the street from where I lived. And if that had gone on longer, I was thinking about joining that picket line, too. Hmm. Uh, when it comes to uh, some of these other uh, ones, I, I am very concerned for them. Uh, it's That's different than the, the forced legal bylaw, California law, increase of... Um, of minimum wage. So you agree with the sort of individual bargaining on behalf of workers and I believe in bargaining. And I believe in, uh, you know, business will come to the table and the employees will come to the table and hopefully they will negotiate something that everybody can ultimately live with. But also something else we have to keep in mind. Who ends up paying for all of those increased costs? 
all the rest of the Californians out there because that's the way this world works. The cost gets passed on to us. And I'm hugely concerned about what's going on in our economy right now with all people in California and the nation. We're being crushed financially. Crushed. All right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking to Eric Early. He's a Republican from Los Angeles who is running for the U.S. Senate. Let's talk about the Senate. This is not your first rodeo. No. Uh, you, as you said, your your job enables you to get into politics, and you have. You've run three other times. You ran for attorney general in 2018. You lost. You ran against mm-hmm. Adam Schiff for that congressional seat in 2020. You lost big, fair to say. 55 points. Uh, And then you ran again for AG last time. What makes you think this time is going to be different? Well, you know, I I get asked that question often. Listen, I'm I'm a conservative Republican. I make no bones about it. And I run in the state of California. And uh, those two... uh, That That is a bit of a conflict, right? It's hard enough for a Republican, much less a conservative in California, get elected. Uh, so I always knew when I got involved in these races, it would be a long haul, all right? And, uh, and I'm, as I said, I'm very blessed. I have a great life. I don't need politics in my life. If I get this job, and I hope to get this job of, of senator, uh, the cut and pay that I will take will be massive. Uh, But the things that I've been talking about for years, more and more people in the state are starting to see that, wait a second, what this guy's been talking about. Like what? uh, What do you you mean? I've been talking for years about where uh, what would be happening with the crime in this state. For example, when uh, when the defund police movement was all the rage, supporting by supported by, among others, my opponents now, Adam Schiff. Katie Porter and Barbara Lee, I was out front from day one saying, listen, if you defund the police, if you cut the police force, crime is going to skyrocket everywhere. But that's an extreme example, which it's I think not came extreme. out of the, you know, the George Floyd thing. And uh, you know, I, think, I think even a lot of Democrats have repudiated that idea of defunding the police. You've got you know, Democrats everywhere calling for more police, including right here in San Francisco. Well, but hold on a second. The question was, is what was I saying back then that was different from what they were saying? And now people are starting to think otherwise and agree with what I was saying back then. That was the question. And frankly, you just answered the question by saying, yes, people, even the Democrats, are agreeing with what I was saying. And it's always easy to uh, to go with the flow when everybody's saying defund the police. When you're the one out front on radio in places like Los Angeles, for example, et cetera, et cetera, saying defunding the police when it was the most unpopular thing to say, when you're the one out front doing that because you're so concerned about the people, People across the political spectrum, the ones that get hurt the most, unfortunately, from what we see, are in communities of color when, when the police are gone. When you're the one out front saying it, that's, that's a leader, and that's an example of what I've been doing for years. So things are coming that way, and there's other things I've been saying for years as well. I could give more examples. Well, let me ask you about a couple issues where you may not be in step with the majority of Californians. Um, <laughs> you told me in your last race that you believe uh, Trump won the 2020 election. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Do you still believe that? And and how do you square that with the fact that, for example, Republicans gained 14 seats in the House in that same election? Um, I still um, have major questions about the election apparatus in this entire country. 
And frankly, I believe that anybody with common sense, and this again crosses party lines, the notion that this is just conservatives or Republicans who have serious questions about the way the elections are working in our country, that's a myth. People are concerned. And all I want to see at the end of the day, and I know many, many people in this country, not just Republicans, want to see it, is what would be so bad about doing picking a bipartisan commission of people who are not crazy far left, crazy far right, solid elected officials to do a deep dive investigation of the uh, voting uh, methods and apparatus in our country? Because yeah, I can tell you- that's different than saying that Trump won. Do you think he won? Do I think he won? Yeah. Uh, I think he won. So, you think it was rigged So you're talking stolen. about an investigation. What do you think? What evidence is there? I mean, we've seen every judge, including Trump judges, throw out these cases. There's an entire RICO case in Georgia. You're a lawyer. Like, have you looked at that case? I mean, well, the RICO case in, in Georgia, uh, to me, that's a joke. And let me let me just mention the word RICO. Yes, I've been an attorney for 30 years. Every time. Do you know how many times I see RICO alleged against a party uh in a lawsuit. And many times it's usually the lowest uh, level of lawyers that bring those kind of claims because they sound so scary and terrible. Rico, I mean, but we you have all of Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> 99 times out of 100 or maybe 90 out of 100, Rico claims get thrown out. Okay. They're just, they sound, wow, racketeering okay, but can and we this focus and that. On this one? So, it's not but but hold on out. a second. Let's talk about the Georgia, sure. uh, the Georgia situation a little bit. That all arose out of that phone call that Donald Trump had with whoever he was talking to, the Secretary, Secretary of State. Yeah, we find, all heard find it. me some votes. We all heard it. He wasn't saying, go out there, go to the printer and print me up a bunch of ballots. He absolutely believed from all kinds of things he was being told and what he was being seen and being and what he was seeing and being shown that there were votes out there that were not properly counted. How do you he know was, what he was thinking? How do I know that? I absolutely believe that. I b firmly believe well, to this believe. day. Well, listen, I know lots of people who absolutely firmly believe that that election uh, had major, major problems uh, with it. So, you know, I understand how perhaps you guys might look at that and say, who could think that there would be a problem with an election? And let me say one other thing while I have you on this subject. Hold on. Because perhaps the greatest election denier of our time, besides Stacey Abrams, uh, not a conservative Republican, she's still claiming that she was had her election stolen. I believe she. I believe she was talking about voter suppression. Hold on a second. But Hold that's a, a second. different. Okay. Okay. Perhaps the greatest election denier of our time is one of my opponents. His name is Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff, to this day will tell you that the only reason Donald Trump won the 2016 election was because of collusion. He colluded with the Russians to win that election. He does not believe that election was legitimate. I think and the frankly, difference I believe, is you guys I believe are Hillary alleging, Clinton okay. thinks the same like, thing. Is there not a difference between saying that you do not agree with the way that voters were spoken to or left out of voting, and you believe that votes were actually stolen or fraudulent. Those are two different types what of claims. I, what Adam Schiff has claimed about the 2016 election. He's saying is, that Russians influenced American voters and they voted a certain way. Is that different? It's all part and parcel of the same thing. He thought there was an illegitimate election to the point where the three of us in this room and tens of millions of Americans were led 
minute by minute, hour by hour, every day of the week, by every major media organization in the country for three years or so on a story that Donald Trump colluded with Russians to get elected. That had huge damage to our nation. So, right. listen, we're we're past the 2020 uh, election. I'm focused on the future elections in this country. I want every American to be able to vote, to be able to have confidence that their vote is actually counting, and to be able to have confidence that there are not that there are not outside sources or whatever you know, messing around with the election. So this is not just Eric Early speaking as a conservative or a Trump supporter. Right, I love we're... this country, and it is a huge problem. Go back and look, for example, at the Carter-James uh, Baker Commission of years ago, where they, before there was universal mail and balling, they right. said you better not have universal mail and balling because the the problem We want to look forward. We, we're short on time. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We, we have to move on. Told and we're almost done. A lot. Yeah, yeah, we got that. Uh, we are short on time, and I... I have to ask you about abortion. Uh, would you support, if you go to the Senate, would you abort, uh, abort, support some kind of a national ban on abortion? You know what? I'm pro-life, but let's be clear here, because it's uh, it's taking away focus from what can what I can actually do to affect Californians. In California here, there is a constitutional amendment. It says that Women will always be allowed to get an abortion. That was voted on by the voters uh, a year or two ago. That was following the Dobbs decision that said this is up for the states to decide, not the federal government. There's nothing I could do in Washington, D.C. that could affect this constitutional amendment here. Well, if there was a trifecta of Republican control. There there is no federal law in the land that can override a constitutional amendment. So for my race, I'd like to focus on what's really affecting people. People across the political spectrum, the racial spectrum, are being crushed financially. Crushed. Okay. Now, you guys have good lives. You live a good life. We but gotta, for most... Are you, are we, the music's playing, man. We got You know, you're that's a talk show host. We got, that's the end of the interview. On, Sorry. Man. All right, listen. He'll be on the ballot in March. Look out for his name, <laughs> Eric Early. Thanks for coming. This uh, That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Okay. Our engineer today is Catherine Monahan. Our producer yeah. is Guy Marzarati. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.